Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, going solo today. No producer, no co-host, no engineer, no call screener. More on that later. 646-564-9909. 646-564-9909 is the number. If you want to call and speak to just me today. If you want to listen to the show, you can go to our show website, blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio, blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio, or you can also listen to the show via the call-in number, which I gave to you previously, 646-564-9909. Let's first start off with last week. So we had some technical difficulties, which we were aware of before the show even started. Um, However, when we actually started the show, we weren't experiencing them for as far as we can tell. Um, And then probably about at the hour and a half mark of the show, uh, we started on the hour end to experience the the problems with the uh, the audio, which they were warning us about prior to the show. Well, interestingly enough, the problem... Uh, which wasn't on, it's not with our equipment, it was with the uh, the server at Blog Talk. But everyone else, you guys out there listening, uh, didn't hear what we heard. So what, when we were listening to, when we were taking callers or playing our audio clips, it sounded garbled in slow motion. When we ended up listening to the show afterwards, it, there was no problem. It, it played clearly and the calls came through clearly, so... That was weird. So someone who didn't wasn't aware of why uh, we were cutting people off or cutting off our audio clips uh, probably was wondering what was going on. We had no idea that it was working on the listener side, but it was not working on our side. So that's why that sounded that way. But everything appears to be working fine this week, and so we hope there are no more problems in the future. Uh, and what I'm probably going to do uh, when I have a free moment is I'm going to um, edit 
that show and uh, probably edit out those clips of us um, cutting off the callers and, and cutting off the audio once it started to play. Um, and this way it will just be a smooth play for anyone who wants to go and check it out on iTunes or in our archives on the uh, Block Talk Radio site. Uh, our producer, uh, not in the house today, um, dealing with a personal uh, family matter. Um, uh, grandmother was readmitted back to the hospital, so he and his wife and other family members are attending to that, and we hope that that is uh, going to work out well uh, for them, and we send all of our positive thoughts and energies uh out there towards them and um hopefully he'll be back with us uh next week so that's that on the recap um the first show we did after the new year was a show on relationships and it was titled relationships why the controversy i believe it was the first show after the new year and it touched on the dangers of establishing relationships in the treatment setting, why those are doomed to fail. Even though there is a 0.1% success rate, but there is a 99.9% failure rate. Uh, today we're going to, our topic today, um, we, through, we were supposed to actually do this last week, this, this particular show. But I explained in last week's show why we did the show on uh, Daytop, the uh, demise of Daytop, the true Hollywood story, from the Daytop, California perspective. Um, so today we're going to focus on, we're going to do relationships again, but we're going to focus on something different than what we did before. So I'm going to read actually the show description because this kind of speaks to it perfectly, and then we'll get rocking and roll. So in no other areas of our lives do we experience the full range of feelings than in our intra and interpersonal relationships. And for those who don't know the difference between intra and inter, intra is inside, inter is outside. So for intra, whoever, you know, usually that would be your spouse, your mother and father, your siblings, your part, you know, significant other, or, you know, best friends, or whomever you decide is within that circle that is uh, so close to you that their actions impact you emotionally in a significant manner. So whoever that applies to, that would be considered an, uh, an intrapersonal relationship because of that. And then enter are those who are outside of that circle. It can just acquaintances, associates, co-workers, you know, things of that nature, or friends that are in the outer circle, not in the inner circle, so to speak. Um, so in our entry into personal relations with others, we experience from extreme joy to extreme sadness. And one's inability to manage, cope, and deal with those feelings, um, especially as persons in various stages of recovery, this can have a negative result, which can include a relapse episode. Is there any way to preempt this? Is there any way to intervene? That's what we're going to talk about, and that's what we're going to attempt to answer today. Let's start with 
feelings. So we're going to go back in order. We state that it's my opinion, and there are others who agree. When asked this question, even though it's a very general question, an all-encompassing question, what's the number one cause of relapse? I used to always say, well, the number one cause of relapse is a person's inability to deal with relationships. And I've modified that a little bit because I realized that, well, actually, the number one cause of relapse is a person's choice to relapse. But we're going to put that to the side because that's an obvious. Okay, We're not going to deal with the obvious. Um, But definitely, if if there was a statistical study, which I'm not aware of, that was done, um, and we dug down deep into a person's relapse and where it emanated from and, and, and what were the roots of it, the root causes, and did a root cause analysis, uh, that's where I believe we would end up 80% of the time, is that a relationship of some sort is at the core of this, and a person's inability to deal with the aspects of the relationship or at the core. You can tell by the questions we receive from our X-Files, the questions we receive via phone that pertain to relationships, whether it be people struggling with their in recovery and persons that they're, they have deep concern for, deep love for, are, are not in recovery and are, in fact, you know, using or they're in an addictive lifestyle. Um, or persons asking about, hey, when is it appropriate for me as a person in recovery to... Uh, to get into a relationship. Um, I even have a question which I'm going to hopefully get to today in the X-Files. I was reading about someone asking about the appropriateness of, of relationships in treatment, in, in the treatment setting. Yes, that's an actual question, but I'm going to answer it. Um, they ask, so we'll answer it. So one of the things we talked about and, and went over in regards to feelings as it pertains to relationships, is we said, okay, first things first. We teach people to be aware of what their what 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 the names of the feelings are. Okay, and so we said an easy way to remember was using the acronym FLAP: fear, loneliness, anger, pain, pleasure. F L A P P, and you can substitute um, loneliness for love depending on the situation. So it's still spells out flap. Once you learn the names of the feelings, then you have to learn to attach them to the different experiences that you have in your throughout your life. And once you learn to do that, then you're able to speak to how you feel, attach it to an experience, and then you're able to then decide how am I going to cope with this situation? So that's the next step. You know, the, the coping with whatever it is the feeling generates within you. Well, we know that there's another aspect that's, I'm I'm, going to use a 2015 term, but give a 1990 definition. So in 2015, the term that's being thrown around is mindfulness. Well, for us, the 1990 definition of that is to be aware is to be alive. Being mindful, being aware, 
excuse me, <clears throat> of how you feel. So being mindful of how you feel, being aware of how you feel, then allows you the opportunity to dictate how you're going to behave, respond to a certain situation, good, bad, or ugly. Now, we're only talking about in the relationship realm. We acknowledge that there's probably no other realm that would generate the level and the uh, the energy of primal feelings than a relationship would. Um, the energy of love that you feel for someone equivalent to the energy of resentment that you might feel, rejection, hurt, pain, loneliness that you might feel. So when it comes to humans and their relationships with each other, I don't think there's another arena where the 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 energy behind the feelings are so strong. Maybe right behind that is uh people rooting for their sports team. Um, but we'll have to use the Joe Williams saying on that one, you know, regardless of what happens, we still got to get up and go to work in the morning, whether they win or lose. But to be aware is to be alive. You have to be aware of what you're feeling. You have to be able to name it, talk about it, develop a coping mechanism how you respond and somewhere within those things I just mentioned people trip up I am certain that someone who has grasped uh, the information while they're in treatment practiced it in the Michigan proving grounds of the treatment setting and finds themselves in a relationship or finds themselves dealing with family matters, okay, and where strong feelings are generated, and they choose, they, they so they, they, they have their toolbox, they walked out with the toolbox, and they find themselves in a circumstance, in a situation and remember, this is why I'm a proponent of practice, 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 role play, role play, role play. Because it's one thing to theorize, one thing to conceptualize. It's another thing to be in the belly of the beast, i.e. in the middle of the situation, okay? And throw the switch to practice what you have learned. And the only way that's going to happen is if you practice it so much that it becomes instinctual in terms of your of your response. So in the past, if it was your MO that you stuffed your feelings, you didn't speak to them, your MO needs to have flipped where instinctually it's now your talking about them, not bottling them up, 
being able to speak to hurt, pain, anger, and whatever it is that may be that you may be feeling, and at whatever levels you may be feeling it. When someone comes back, and this makes no difference whether they're male or female, um, I, to, to me it's fifty-fifty in terms of, you know, wh- which which sex has, uh, you know, the most turmoil causing uh, that has caused the most turmoil that results in uh, a relapse episode for a person. Fifty-fifty. Looking back, just thinking right off the top of my head, I can't think of it swaying one way or the other. We've had males come back, females come back, and, you know, it's uh, no, neither side has an edge. You've heard some of our callers. I mean, we had one a couple of weeks ago where a lady uh, talked about, you know, she's in treatment. She's trying to, you know, get this recovery thing get it lined up, get it under her belt, um, has children, and, you know, had a relationship with the father. Father of the children is still out there, you know, living a negative lifestyle. And she knows deep down that she can't be a part of that anymore. It has to be about her. It has to be about the children. It has to be about doing the right thing for her and the children. And there is nothing she can do to save him. We can't be saviors in this regard. It doesn't mean we can't throw we can't throw a life raft out there for people. And by that, what do I mean by that? Well, we we doesn't mean that when once we have gotten enough recovery under our belt where we are safely on shore S-H-O-R-E, on the shore of the sea, where we are safely on land, safely on shore, that we can throw, so there's no danger of us being pulled back out into the water, okay? We can throw a life raft out there and say, hey, you know, if you want to be with me and you want to, you know, be a family, this is what you got to do. This is what I'm, this is the life I'm leading. And if you want to be with me and be with the family, this is what you have to do. So that's throwing the life raft out there. It's then the ball, the paddles, I should say, are then in their boat. Now, which way are they going to row? Are they going to come towards the shore, come towards recovery, or are they going to, you know, let the waves, let the current carry them wherever it may be? Now, you as the person in recovery can't control that. That person has to make that decision. So that's the life raft. That's the you know the, the hand you've extended, but you've extended it from a safe distance so that you don't get pulled back in. You don't want to be a statistic of a person who has, hey, I'm back in here. Why? Because of a relationship and my inability to make smart decisions, or or my inability to maintain my boundaries. You know how many boundary tickets we could write? That's treatment language. Violation of boundaries? That's, by the way, the way it starts. 
you learn the boundaries that you have to set. You learn who's the most important person in the world. That's you. And no one should come between you and your recovery. So you set that boundary line. And once you set it, now you got to enforce it. See, it's easy to set the boundary line. You know, you use the, you, mark, you you put your markers down. That's the easy part. The hard part is when the person comes calling, or when you go searching. Let's let's not put it on just you, the person comes calling because sometimes you go searching. So whichever way it may be. And for whatever reason, maybe you're going searching to extend that hand. Okay? Let's say that. And you got your boundaries. You know what the boundaries are. You know the lines, where the lines are marked that you're not going to cross. And you're not going to allow them to cross. Or you're not going to go over the line. You're certainly not going to allow them to come across your line into your safe space, your territory. But this is usually where the problem first starts allowing the boundaries to be violated. And the other party worms their way in to your safe space, your recovery space. It's not all on them. Sometimes you put the door ajar a little bit. You know, you put a little door stopper in there to hold the door open, hoping Maybe even praying that they'll get it together. And we know it's a tough subject. We know it's hard. We know it's not easy. Especially when it comes to love. But we always come back to who's the most important person. Well, I don't want to be lonely. Isn't that the name of a song? Or a hook line to a song? I think it is. I'll come up with the name of the group. So that's you not talking about how you're feeling. You're feeling lonely, and that lo- that feeling of loneliness is going to cause you to make decisions that are going to cause you to then violate your boundary line. And I'm just going to, just for discussion's sake, I'm going to use he. But we already we, we already acknowledge that it works both ways, but I'm not going to keep going back and forth, so I'm just going to say he. So you know he's not doing the right thing. You know he's still in the life. He hasn't shown you any signs of making a, of making a turn. But he's the father of your children. These are the things you say to yourself, and no, there's no argument there. These are real facts. He's the father of your children. And in the recesses of your mind, you're, you're hoping to keep the family together. And maybe there's a life for us if he can only get his act together and, and, and get on this recovery thing with me. It doesn't work that way. 
If it worked that way, couples will be coming in together all the time. And that's rarely the case. 95% of the time, one person has to pull away and save themselves and come in and be selfish. Remember we said often on this show, we talk about the word selfish, and we know out in society it has a negative connotation. But in reality, okay, selfishness, also there's, there's a positive aspect to being selfish. That's not talked about enough. And this example that I'm walking us through is a, is a perfect example of where she needs to be selfish. It needs to be just about her and just about her children. And she can't leave the door ajar and risk the boundaries being violated and being sucked back in. Think about it now. If a person, if, if, if he has no interest in doing the right thing, turning his life around, He's not motivated by his, you know, by the fact that he has children who need him. He's not motivated by wanting to be with you in a different manner. What is he saying by continuing to live the life that he's leading? Well, he's not outrightly saying, hey, I'm rejecting you, but his actions are. That's not easy to acknowledge. It's very rarely acknowledged. We've talked about it on the show before. Rejection is one of those feelings that it always slips underneath the door, always slips underneath the table. It's never talked about. It's always glossed over. When in fact, it's one of the most painful feelings to experience. And oftentimes people think, when we speak about rejection, that we're talking about the, the, the overt rejection, where someone says, no, I don't want to be with you. That's overt rejection. I want to see someone else. That's overt rejection. No, we're talking about the covert rejection. Where through their actions of not wanting to, you're, you want to you want to get your life together. You want to go on a different track and do the right thing, but they want to stay over here on the other side of the highway, do, living a negative lifestyle, and still want to see if they can be with you and have a relationship. Well, their desire to not do the right thing is a form of rejecting you. But that's not, in, that's not in the easy aspect of rejection to not only recognize, but even talk about. That one's more painful than the overt. That's why we can ask someone, we can sit for an hour asking someone, uh, you know, up, about this process and, and knowing that they're dealing with someone who is, is, is you know, leading a negative lifestyle but there's ties there, there's children involved, etc. And, you know, the person is at their wit's end with, you know, wanting to try and save this relationship, but all things point to the other person is not there. 
But the other party who wants to save everything and is trying to do the right thing, you know, feels hurt, feels the pain, experiences the loneliness, but the rejecting actions of the other person sometimes is often overlooked and not talked about. So back to the boundaries. That's usually the first way. That's usually the first way it gets started. Remember, when when, when there is an, uh, a a relapse, the actual picking up and using aspect of the relapse, we have to define that because we know that relapse is is a process. The the end action of picking up is just the end, you know, the, the end of the process. But there's a beginning of the process. And what we're talking about today, the beginning of that process is usually the, the, the violation of your the boundaries that you have set. Or not practicing not practicing the things you have learned that you've put in your toolbox to deal with the feelings that come up in an intimate relationship or an interpersonal relationship. It doesn't have to be intimate. Boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, significant other, etc. It could be, you know, parent, child, brother, sister. You know, those are still interpersonal and close relationships that have attached to them very primal feelings. We asked in the beginning, is there any way to pre preempt this? Can we prevent, to use a football term, use the prevent defense to uh, reduce or minimize relationships being at the top of the list of a relapse trigger? There are ways to do that, but I think if we think about it honestly and think about what's involved and who's involved, i.e. us, human beings, what we feel, what we experience, etc., that it will probably always remain at the top of the list and always be a part of the human experience. What can we do to minimize it? we got to emphasize more consistently, more emphatically how important it is to practice. Remember Alan Iverson? We're talking about practice. Practice articulating your feelings. Not acting them out talking them out. Not being controlled by an outside source, but you being in control of what you're doing, regardless of how you're feeling. So the outside source is not controlling you. You're in control of you. That takes practice. And so back in the day, when treatment was 
long enough where a person could really get significant opportunities to practice, especially if someone was more had struggled more with this than some you know than others, they really needed the practice time. That's not the case in today's treatment world. You're not going to get the 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 safe environment practice time of the treatment setting. So it's almost like it's got to be you know we got to put it in front of you and you know we got to you know ram it down your throat real quick and then get you to you know practice it as much as you can. But it's like going home with homework. Harder to do with adolescents, of course. Their brains aren't fully developed. But as most of us who worked in the industry have found out, if you've had a chance to work with adolescents and adults together, you, you realize, well, there's not that much difference between them when it comes to uh, uh, drug treatment, substance abuse treatment. Sometimes the adults act worse than the uh, than the kids. But the the difference that the adults have, uh, more often than not, is a little bit more life experience in dealing with uh, you know the intra and interpersonal relationships, and with that advantage, it's hoped doesn't always work out this way. But with that advantage, it's hoped that the tools, the additional tools that you give them and the practice that you're able to give them for the whatever length of time that they're in the treatment setting, they can use that to improve the way that they interact in their personal relationships. So what have we identified so far? We identified that boundaries, the violation of boundaries, either by me not enforcing my own boundaries or allowing, well, ultimately, I'm at fault. If we were to be brutally honest, I'm at fault because no one can violate my boundaries unless I allow them to. Now, if I really didn't enforce my boundaries, meaning was I really serious about my boundaries? Or was I just putting the markers out there just as an exercise? But on you know, but deep down I was still leaving the door ajar a little bit. So the other party can, you know, see that there's still a you know a way to warm their way way in. That's on me. So whether I was serious and somehow allowed them to worm their way back in, or I wasn't serious and it was just a show of putting down my markers and my boundaries and I let them back in. Either way, it's ultimately on me. I have to be dead serious about my boundaries. Dead serious about the boundaries. Then we'll know what the next step is. So if I'm dead serious about my boundaries, I know that I'm going to go through stuff. I know I'm going to experience hurt. 
I know I'm going to experience loneliness. I know I'm going to experience rejection. Not overt rejection, covert rejection. I know I'm going to have to possibly face the reality that I I may have to move on. And there's a lot of people who come through the treatment world that eventually are forced to are, are forced to realize and then forced to actually make that decision that I have to move on for my own personal well-being. I have to move on because I don't want this trigger hanging around to be eventually be pulled on me. So no one knows better than you what steps you have to take. So we'll throw a lot of possible tools out there, okay? And it ultimately depends on where you're at, how strong you are in your position, how strong you are in your recovery, how strong you are in your dedication towards what you want to do with your life. Some are, you know, dead serious about their recovery, but they have a weakness in this particular area. Many do, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it. Because we're human. And so I have to be willing to share, talk about it with, you know, my, my, my friend, my peers, whomever it is that I, that I have available to me. Because again, we're dealing with human emotion involving relationships. This is different from what you might feel and experience if you, you know, you lose a a job. What you might feel or experience if your team loses. What you might feel or experience if, you know, there's other things going on in the outer circle of your inner circle. Okay? You might have thoughts and feelings about those outer things but they're not going to impact your day-to-day business, so to speak. But if you got stuff going on in the inner circle, the intra-personal area, this has a propensity to impact your day-to-day life. You're not a robot. Some people look at us cross-eyed when we say, well, the first, because usually the first question we ask, we ask is, did you talk about it with anyone? And they look at us incredulously like, what, It's that sounds so simple. It couldn't be, that couldn't be something that I could have done to help help me deal with what I was experiencing. Well, yeah. There's no rocket science involved. I don't know if science is a real world word, by the way. We say all the time. I mean, I don't think there's anything more repeated in the treatment environment than about talking and sharing about what you're feeling, what you're going through, etc. That's got to be the number one thing that's repeated. 
And it doesn't stop. It's not supposed to stop when you leave the treatment setting. It's even more important to practice that. It helps release the the energy behind the feelings. So you can imagine if someone is dealing with making decisions regarding a relationship, what kind of feelings they're going to be going through, especially if there are connections there. When I say connections or tentacles, I mean there's children involved and there's history involved and 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 other things that have tied them, um, not negatively um, only, to, to this other person and the reality of making a decision to break those ties for the betterment of my future and my and my sobriety, that's a big deal. It's a big decision. And not all have successfully made it or can successfully make it. You heard that caller who was struggling. We heard it in her voice. She was just hoping that there was some there was some magical way she can get her man to get on board with what she's doing, get his get his butt in a treatment program and get on board with this so that they can maintain and and, and continue to be a family. And the cold hard truth is that there was absolutely nothing she can do to make that happen. She can't put him in a headlock, she can't force him to do it. He has to want to do it. Short of him getting in trouble with the law, the court's forcing him into treatment. That's a different story. But ultimately, even if that's the case, ultimately, 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 you have to want to do it because that's that's what's going to give you the staying power in your recovery, that you have desired this. You want this. Someone isn't forcing it upon you. You want it. So if we want to preempt if we want to preempt this being a trigger, relationships and how we do or do not deal with them appropriately, we have to use our treatment time wisely. Especially if, as counselors, if we know that the clients we're dealing with have significant others, or have issues within the inner circle that they have to deal with while either they're in treatment or they're going to be faced with dealing with them when they leave treatment, regardless of the treatment setting, whether they're in residential, outpatient, or whatever the case may be. So many people fall behind this. I'll tell you how big this is. It exceeds it exceeds the recovery community. This happens with people who have who aren't in recovery, who are just leading normal lives. You know, recovery from drug and alcohol abuse is not even a part of their their, their history, and they struggle with the same issues. The only difference is for them, there is no. There's nothing to relapse to in terms of, you know, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, etc. But they deal with the same thing. How do we know? Well, we see it. You see it. 
in your circles out there. There are people in your circles who, who, are, who are struggling in relationships and are, are having to make decisions regarding those relationships, and those relationships are triggers for them. Talk about everything else. Most of you start talking about that, you get a whole different person in front of you. And so we avoid. Don't talk about that with them. When it should be the opposite. It's not going to go away. And we as counselors, you know, we have to give the cold hard truth. We can't sugarcoat it. Just like we advised that lady over the phone, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, that you're going to have to let go is not the right description. It's, I think the more apt description is you're going to have to move along. You're just going to have to move forward and move along. And let that person decide what they have to decide for themselves. You decide what you have to decide for yourself. And if there's kids involved, your kids. And let the chips fall where they may. But as long as you are making a decision that's in your best interest. And the kids' best interest if their kids involved. So is there a way to intervene? Well, yes, we find ourselves intervening often. The unfortunate part is that we're intervening after the process of relapse has reached its conclusion, meaning so the person has picked up and they've used. And then we're kind of, you know, late. Not ultimately late, but we would have wanted to intervene prior to the person reaching that conclusion of the relapse process and picking up and using. We we would have wanted to have intervened somewhere in the middle. And, of course, that requires the, the, the party to exercise one of the tools in their toolbox and picking up the phone, calling one of their peers, calling one of their friends, calling anyone that they can share with and talk about what they're going through in regards to this particular trigger. So that would be the ideal, to intervene before the pickup. But more often than not, the intervention happens after the pickup. So there's been a relapse episode, and... The person reaches out, and and it doesn't necessarily have to reach out to the to the treatment provider, but they can they reached out to either a peer or uh, you know someone they can talk to. Makes no difference, as long as it's someone that can help set them. You know, no pun intended, but arrest the relapse and uh, redirect back onto the right path. And then ultimately, dig into, how did I get here? How did this trigger get me? This relationship trigger. 
what decisions did I make or not make? Did I set a boundary and violate it? Did I allow the boundary to be violated? These are all questions that need to be asked. If not by the party that you're sharing with, then there needs to be some serious self-analysis. More often than not, I would get, I would say that if you're in a relapse position, self-analysis is usually not the best way to go. There should be someone there assisting you with this analysis. Um, that would be more ideal because we got to get to the bottom. And why it's important to get to the bottom. If a relationship trigger causing a relapse episode, you need to know every single thing that occurred along that process and then where you went, where you deviated that had you ending up at this conclusion at the end of this road so that we can walk you back to that point of deviation and you can see it as you're walking back. And the reason why this needs to be done is because when this same process when, when comes back to you again, because you are going to face it again at some point, you're going to see it, we, we want you to be able to recognize it coming towards you so then you can then make the appropriate decision. Ah, I've seen this before. I recognize this. I know what this is. I know what this is. I know what's going on here. And then you boom, you make a different decision. And there ends up being a different result. So that's the whole reasoning behind the exercise of walking you back. It's not that we want to hear the horrors of the of the episode of, of, of how you ended up relapsing. No. You you need to walk yourself back every step to see. We need to find out where was that fatal step, in quotations, the word fatal, that caused you to go down the wrong road behind this particular trigger. It takes uh, mature, responsible, strong men and women to not allow relationships to be a trigger that ends up in a relapse episode. Will it continue to be the number one? Yes. Because we're human. And as humans, we all need, seek, have a desire for relationships. Intra and interpersonal relationships. And so we are always putting ourselves in a position where we're going to experience those primal feelings that are tied to relationships. But we have to do a better job of using that toolbox 
enforcing the boundary lines. And therefore, it would minimize the number that we see, the number of people that we see that are being affected by this particular trigger. Remember the Brady Bunch? Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Well, we say in, in our field, relationships, relationships, relationships. It'll always be. We're going to take a break. We're at the top of the hour. Uh, when we come back, I'll close out, and um, then we'll move into our recovery support time. So we'll be back in about a few minutes. We're going to take a quick music break.
Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. Welcome back to Roach on Recovery. 646-564-9909 is the number. And before we go into our recovery support time, uh, so we our topic today was uh, relationships and why it's number one relapse trigger. We hope we were able to provide some insight to why that is the case and how we can possibly uh, preempt it and intervene and, and what people can do to... Uh, possibly reduce that number, but we all agree it's probably going to remain number one because everyone's in a relationship of some sort. Uh, no call screener today, so we're going to go to the phone. We have a, we know we have some callers waiting on the line. Uh, I'm just going to ask for your first name and your hometown, and we'll pick it up from there. So let's go to our first caller. Hi, welcome to the show. Can I have your first name, please, in your hometown? Yeah, my name is Hillary, and I'm from San Jose. Hi, Hillary. Can you speak up a little louder, please? Yeah, sure. Can you hear me now? Much better. Yes, much better. My question for you is, um, how do you regain your focus in recovery if you seem to have hit, like, a plateau or a funk? Um, so to speak, and it seems like you're snowballing. How do you stop the snowball and regain focus and, like, relight a fire under yourself? So that is 100% normal. Okay. 100% normal. We we call that a hump, like you're going through a hump. <clears throat> and it's like this dead period of, just you know, like you're treading you know in quicksand, you know what I mean you're not mm-hmm. you don't feel like you're making any progress or you know moving forward, and you're just like stuck, yeah, I feel Am like I I'm moving backwards, kind of you can, yeah, yeah, you can even feel like you're going backwards. The reality, however, is that that's not the case. you're not moving backwards, you actually are making progress. Okay, but you're okay. just hitting one of those humps where it's just not readily, you know, seen by you, the person experiencing it. But trust me, we used to say when people were, you know, averaging 12-month stays in treatment, let's say residential, that they would yeah. hit four humps. So how long have you been in your treatment environment? Um, 
four months now. Okay, so you're right around that hump time. <laughs> yeah, and I'll have eight months clean and sober on the 23rd. So okay. I feel like I'm getting that itch. Like I know I'm not cured, but at the same, in the same sense, I feel like I'm ready to go back into the world. This is my second consecutive program. Okay, so, so you got tw- 12 months combined. Um, I have, yeah, no, I have okay. eight months combined. I'm sorry. Eight months combined. Okay, yeah, you're 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 coming up on that, which would ordinarily be that nine-month hump. And that's okay. about the time when a person traditionally, in in the traditional old-school sense of treatment, would ordinarily be getting ready to really go out of the house, you know, start looking for work, um, and be leaving the everyday doldrums of the treatment setting behind. Okay. Their focus shifts to outside. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I feel like my focus is outside. Like I'm thinking about, you know, where I would want to work and exactly. I want to go back to school and where how I want to refocus my life. And I'm thinking You're right about, on time. Okay. <laughs> You're right on time, right on schedule. Okay. If, if he Unfortunately, wasn't I'm not right on schedule for OCG because I've only been here four months, so I still have another, you know, Doesn't four matter. to Doesn't six matter. months left. Doesn't matter. As long as you know upstairs that you're, you're you're right on time with your clock mentally. Okay. Well, that's that's okay. a little relief because I'm like, what, okay. what is going on with me right now? <laughs> no, you're right where you should be. Okay. Well, All thank right. you very much. Uh-huh. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to our next caller. Hi, welcome to the show. May I have your first name, please, and your hometown? Hi, um, this is Juan Goy from Rabbit City. Okay. And so my question is... Um, do you, I've been in treatment for about eight months now, and I've also been abstinent from having sex. And I'm not looking for a relationship or anything, but is it too early to have um, no strings attached, um, you know, sex with somebody, not uh, in the treatment facility where I'm at, but maybe with somebody outside, Um do you think I should wait? Because I find I myself, my... <laughs> I find myself, or is this part of my disease that's manifesting in another way? Well, <laughs> I wish my co-host was here. How about that? Um, <laughs> I would. I, let's start with this. I would say, in reference to your last statement that you're putting too much thought into it. (laughs) Okay. What you're expressing is a normal, natural human desire. Okay. Okay. Um, As to when is the right time for that to manifest itself, only you, no one else can tell you, only you know the answer to that question. The only thing others can advise you on and, and and talk with you about as you share about this and and you know kudos and commend you for you know 
sharing about this, um, is to be careful in terms of your decision making and and how you go about yes taking action on this. Okay. Is it the appropriate time? Is it the appropriate person? And all of that mm-hmm. stuff comes into play. Okay. And that's as far as I'm willing to go. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As I mentioned before while I was talking about, uh, while we were discussing our topic of the day, I said there was a question I wanted to get to uh, that tied to the topic, and I'm going to get to it right now. This is from um, Sarah. I can't play our X-Files clip audio because our co-host usually does that, and I can't find it. Uh, our relationships, listen carefully to this question, are relationships in a treatment program detrimental? And then she, that's with a question mark, and then and then it says, and why? So let's dig into this just a little bit. The fact that she put an and why question mark after the first part of the question, which had a question mark, tells me that she knows or senses that it's detrimental and wrong, violation of the rules, etc., so that's what the and why. So maybe the question should be, well, why aren't relationships allowed in treatment programs? Because they're detrimental. The focus becomes on the relationship, want number one, and comes off of you. And speaking of my co-host, I remember him specifically speaking to this last week or the week before. Number two, no one comes into treatment to find a spouse a significant other, etc. You come in to find yourself, not somebody else. And it doesn't have to be number three. Those are the two most important reasons. We've seen it enough that when the focus comes off you and goes on to another person for relationship purposes, either both go down or one goes down and the other one's left to pick up the pieces. And sometimes the picking up of the pieces does not look very good. So, and more importantly, since this question did come from a female, historically, historically, when there are relationships that occur in the treatment setting, though we lose more women than men, and it's not even close in terms of the statistical number. It's like 95% of the time, it's the woman that decides, oh, I don't want to be here, and, 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 and leaves. The man stays behind. Now, of course, we're not saying it's bad that the man stays behind, but it just highlights when that happens and you know the, the community finds out about it, people are embarrassed, they're ashamed, there's guilt. There's all you know sorts of feelings that they go through, and sometimes they're so overwhelming, people don't want to face them, especially in front of other people, and they end up walking out the door. Now, who has benefited as a result of this? One life has been impacted negatively, and possibly another. Who knows? 
That's why we're so adamant about it not occurring in the treatment environment. Or post-treatment even. I think we got into that reason before also. All right, let's go back to the phones. Hi, welcome to the show. Can I have your first name, please, in your hometown? Uh, Michael from Santa Cruz. Hi, Michael. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, my question is, uh, how long does it take for cocaine to get out of your system altogether? I mean, I know you can get off the effects like in three or four days, but it stays in your system a lot longer. How long does it stay in your system? Actually, cocaine is one of the drugs that really exit the system very quickly. Um, it it uh, it's it's almost similar to alcohol in terms of how long it stays in the system three days a week um that's not to say that a lab could not do an ultra 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 sensitive test you know 30 days later 60 days later to find trace amounts of it somewhere in the body okay but generally speaking you know usually after three days the cocaine is out of your system oh okay that's good news thank you you're very welcome. And let's go to another caller. Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name and your hometown, please? Christopher, San Carlos. Hi, Christopher. Welcome. How are you? Good. How can we help you, sir? All right, so my question is, how do I let people... How do I not let people get under my skin? Because last time I called and I asked how I can better control my anger. But see, now I'm dealing with the confidence thing and not letting people rent space in my head. Are they renting space in your head? Sometimes, yes, but sometimes I choose not. Do you know what I mean? Let them react to it or let me react to it and just try to ignore it. But so at the same time, I'm always thinking about it. Oh, so what's the difference between when you don't allow it versus when you do allow it? Because I feel like this certain same person is nitpicking at me and poking holes at me. So that's that was my question, is how I how do I get past that? you got to cut the puppet strings. Huh? You have to cut the puppet Strings, meaning you cannot allow another person to dictate and control how you feel to the point that you're going to be miserable. Because otherwise, if they see that they're able to have that effect, they're going to continue to attempt to control you with the puppet strings. So you have to cut the strings and not allow them to have that effect on you. Once they so realize they're not, once they realize they're no longer having that effect, they usually go away. But what if they're you know what I mean they're just constant, constant. You know what I mean? Anytime I talk to somebody they throw their two cents in. That has to you know what I mean, speak bad on me. Chris, it's not about the other person. It's about how you 
It's what you're going to do to not allow that other person to have that effect on you. Mm-hmm. It could be anybody. So this is good practice, okay? It's good mm-hmm. practice for you to not allow someone to get under your skin in a way that then impacts how what, how your day is going to be, what you're going to do, and so on and so forth. Otherwise, you might as well just give them the controls to the puppet strings, and they'll be able to just do whatever they want to do to you and make you feel however they want you to feel, and that's a miserable existence. Yeah. Because so I got control. three weeks left, and I can't, you know what I mean? I can't take let this control. happen to make me look bad on my way out. Take control. Okay. You take control, okay? Yes. All right, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. Here we go. There's so many people that have, that they got these puppet strings above their heads. They don't know it. They can't see them, but we can see them. Allowing other people to get into their heads, allowing people to control how they're feeling, and then impacting what they do and how they behave. So I always say, cut the puppet strings. Well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you know the puppet. You know what the puppet looks like, right? It has strings on top. So I said, well, that's basically what you what you're you look like. Whoever this person is or that person is, they're they're getting under your skin in such a way that they might as well just be controlling you like you're a puppet. So you you have to take control back. And the first step is, metaphorically speaking, of course, cut the strings. And guaranteed. When the person no longer sees they're having the impact that they desire, which is probably entertainment for them, okay, they'll leave you alone. And they'll move along to see who else they can get under their skin. This is real life. This is not just in the treatment setting. There's going to be people in your life that are going to act this way and and try and be this way. And you have to learn how to deal with them and cope with that and come up with your own counter-offensive for how you're going to deal with it. But you're certainly, certainly not going to let someone get into your head and, as using his description, live rent-free in your head that way. Mental health issues notwithstanding, of course. Back to the phones. Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name and your hometown, please? Yeah. Hi, how's it going? This is Brian from Redwood City. Hey, Brian, how are you? How can we help you? Uh, doing well. Um, I had a question for you about, um, I was wondering if you had any uh, uh, strong advice for uh, stress management. Stress management. Well, I'm glad you phrased the question that way, management of stress versus how can we not have stress. We all know that's <laughs> not possible. Right. All of us have to deal with stress on a day-to-day basis, but how do we best manage it? Well, so I interpret stress to be something or things, and it could just be life, work, home, family, etc. you know, just existing in life, things that wear on you, W-E-A-R. 
and then they eventually make you feel wary. You know, it's like it's constantly on your mind. You know, and sometimes it may be troubling to you. Okay, and then the result of that is, and you're constantly worrying about this thing. We know it's been empirically studied and proven that when you are stressed out, my hands are up in quotes, about something, worrying about something, something is is wearing on you, that it affects the weakest part of you. Whether that's physiologically, biologically, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, it affects the weakest part of you. So you, using you as an example, Brian, have, knowing yourself, no one knows you better than you do, have to first determine, okay, what is, what is my weakness? Is it a physical thing? Like, do I have a bum knee? Or is it a physiological, you know, something else physiologically? Or is it a biological thing? Is it an emotional thing? Whatever that weakness is, okay, I, I first have to identify it. Once I identify that, what that weakness is, I have to be aware that, you know what, if I don't deal with stress, troubles, things that make me wary, things that I spend my time worrying about, if I don't deal with them appropriately, this is where it's going to affect me. Now, here's the simple answer to your question. How do I manage it? The same thing that we tell people to do all the time. The more you take your problems, the things that make you wary, the things you're stressing about, whatever they may be, and share with others. Put put the weight on other people's shoulders or a little bit here, a little bit there, and a little bit there. So it's all you don't feel like it's all on you. Okay? That reduces the stress a little bit. And it's good to exercise to reduce stress. Okay, so it's a combination of taking care of oneself mentally, emotionally, physically, and psychologically. When you talk about something, does it mean that it makes it go away? No. But at least it helps transfer the weightiness of the subject off of my shoulders to someone else that's willing to take a little bit of it. And I'm sure you've experienced that, Brian. Yes, I have. That's the best answer I can give in terms of dealing with stress. Thank you. You're very welcome. Okay, next caller. Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name and your hometown, please? Uh, Reginald. I'm out of Mill Valley. Hi, Reginald. Welcome. Uh, yeah, my question is, uh, uh, why is uh, recovery so important? Versus what? Versus not uh, following through at all. Well, um, a person can stay in the life, and what I mean by the life is the negative life of using and, you know, the and and whatnot, they can just stay in that life and see how that works out for them. And usually, it's one of two ways it works out. 
jail or death, early death, or they could try something different. Okay. Is it that easy? It sounds pretty simple. It's usually not that complicated. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you very. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. It's usually not complicated. I didn't use the term recovery in my answer, but you can either decide, I'm going into my X-Files as I'm talking, by the way, you can either decide that you're going to try something different, or you could stay on the same track, and that track usually has one of two endings, and a third ending hasn't been mentioned yet that I'm aware of, so... Usually people end up dying or they end up in jail. Let's see. Russell from Foster City wants to know, what is the hardest drug to detox from? Great question. This is my opinion. It might be backed up by empirical evidence. I don't know. Um, I would put alcohol first. Alcohol, alcoholics require a medical detox. They have to be medically monitored. Usually medication is involved as a part of the detox because of the various things that can occur when an alcoholic is detoxing off of alcohol. Um, I would put heroin second. Um, even though generally speaking... Uh, withdrawal or detox from heroin is not life-threatening, meaning so if you weren't in a, de- uh, in, in a formal detox center um, and you were just went cold turkey on your own, it would be very uncomfortable, uh, but you probably aren't going to die. Um, but we do recommend you go into a detox so that, uh, I mean, because we're in 2015, they have things to help deal with the symptoms of the the detox, and there's no reason to for someone to experience uh, the drasticness of the withdrawals. Uh, you still have to pay the piper a little bit, um, but they've come up with stuff now to make it somewhat a little bit more comfortable than it used to be back in the day. Um, after that, I would say uh, methamphetamine um, and then cocaine. So that's my order. Alcohol, heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine. Uh, Eric from Seattle, Washington. Why do I get angry when I consume GHB? So GHB, for those of you who don't know, gamma-hydroxybutrate, date rate, drug, drug, club drug, whatever they want to call it. Um... It's a depressant, Um, so it says when he consumes it, so if he gets angry when he consumes it, that means the effect, the depressant effect is pretty, for him, 
you know, physiologically for him, biologically for him, is very fast because usually that does usually there's a sense of euphoria first, and 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 then, you know, the after effect of the drug is is when the true nature of the drug comes through, which is the depressant effect. Um, so if he feels that fairly soon after taking it, then it, that's just the way it affects him specifically. Um, but uh, these synthetic drugs that they have out there now, um, I'm, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's not just the, you know, you know, you're looking around and asking, you know, where, what happened to, where are the heroin addicts at? Where are the alcoholics? Where are the cocaine addicts? You know, where, you know, well, the meth addicts are still out there big time, but more and more, uh, people are using synthetic drugs. Um, too many are dying, by the way, and uh, a lot of experimentation going on with the synthetics. What can we say? What can we say? All right, let's go back to the phones. Uh, hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name, please, and your hometown? Hi, my name is Paige, and I'm from Redding, California. Hi, Paige. How can we help you? Um, so I've been listening to you for a while now. Um, I recently relapsed, and um, see, and when I'm out in my addiction, I smoke a lot of meth. Um, I consume like nearly a teener to my face a, di- a day uh, in my addiction, and um, I too do D- GHB a lot. But I would take like maybe one to two caps within the when, within a day, and, and um, then did you, hear, did you hear what I just said about GHB? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, like I would also like if I were to smoke blues, I would, and which I do when I'm out there, I would only do like one a day or you know a few a week. Like it was like occasional, but when I relapsed. I'm in treatment. When I relapsed, I went out and I smoked three three blues back to back. Smoked meth all day, all night, all day the next day, and had like four to five caps of GHB. And all right. I've been sober for about got, ten months. Got the picture. What's the question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just you, wondering you, why you I went above bad, something I've ever bad done blues. before. You had a bad, bad relapse. Apparently. So what's, what's okay? So how can we help you? Um, I'm I've shocked myself, and I'm wondering why I. I mean, I before I didn't like right before I relapsed. If you had asked me, do you think that you'd relapse in treatment? I would have been like, hell no. <laughs> and for some reason, I I ended up relapsing. And I'm wondering why I went to that extent. Like, that's not even how I do it out in my addiction. I went beyond anything that I've ever, you know. And I'm wondering why I, I did that. Like, I felt the need to do something like that. All right, I'm going to give you some homework. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. And you can call us back next week and... Maybe give us some insight and some an- some answers. Okay. So you're going to do the work. So here's here's what I want you to look for. 
You're going to walk yourself backwards. Backwards, backwards, backwards steps to the point where you came to that fork in the road, okay, while you were in treatment, okay, where you decided that this is what you were going to do. Okay. So at some point, you arrived at that fork in the road. And you need to walk yourself back to that point. And when you get back to that point, then you, one step at a time, how did I, what caused me? And this requires honesty, gut level honesty and digging deep. What caused me to make, to make this deviation? What was going on with me internally? And that's the big question. What was going on with me internally that I was not dealing with and I chose rather than deal with it to do this? All right. So you got to sit down and do some introspection because this cycle can just continue over and over and over again. And at some point, we got to stop it. We got to... No pun intended. We got to arrest this cycle. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. You're very welcome. And and I, we expect to hear from you. I'll call you back next week. You got a week to dig deep. Okay. Well. All right. All right. Bye. Bye bye. Many people are on this 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 cycle, whether they're in treatment or not in treatment, of periods of sobriety followed by you know, a relapse, periods of sobriety followed by a relapse. You know, so this is like you're in this washing machine, okay, and you can't get out of this, this cycle. Well, something is causing it. It's not just happening, you know, by happenstance, okay? But, you know, in order to get to the root cause, you know, we can't talk at surface level. We got to, we got to dig into what's really going on here. You know, what What am I not dealing with? What am I trying to escape from? What am I trying to medicate my myself for and from? You know, these are hard questions that require gut-level honesty and introspection. And some people need assistance with it. Some people can do their own self-analysis. So we'll see if she can do do both, get assistance and do her self-analysis and come back and maybe give us some insight. All right, another call. Let's go. Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name, please, in your hometown? Todd from Morgan Hill. Hi, Todd. Welcome. Thank you. So my question is, uh, when you're in treatment, you deal with a lot of different personalities and so forth. So what would your advice be for someone who is extremely stubborn and has a problem with authority and dealing with those people in treatment? So we're not talking about you. We're talking about somebody else. Correct. Okay. All right. Don't laugh at this answer, but all I can tell you is this is what we did when we were in treatment. You ready? I'm ready. We ganged up on them. (laughs) You told me not to laugh, but I got to laugh. Don't laugh. That's what we did. We ganged up on them. So maybe so three, three, 
three or four of us would get together and sit down at the dinner table. Well, let me start from the beginning. At the breakfast table, at the lunch table, at the dinner table, every day, seven days a week until we broke them. When I say broke them, I mean the person who's acting that way is putting, it's like they have this defense shield up. Okay? okay. And so they're be behaving in this manner. And in order to break it, break them from it, okay, we had to gang up, you know, all three of us, four of us get together and every day get with them and find out, why are you being like this? What's behind this? Why are you trying to treat us this way? Why can't you talk to us in this manner? I mean, just care, C-A-R-E, front the person, okay, and, and make them come out with it. And they may not come out with it the first day, second day, or third day, but at some point they're going to get sick and tired of the same three or four people asking them questions, trying to, to get into why they're being and acting the way they are, okay, and they're going to come forth and they're going to change. But it requires consistency, and commitment to the effort. Yeah, this person that I'm I'm talking about, you know. Can you speak up, Todd? I said this person that I'm talking about is someone that is open to the help, but I don't know if it's a respect thing, if it's an entitlement thing, or what it is. But it just seems like when discussing an issue with this person, it's completely discarded and a wall goes up like you mentioned the wall goes up and it, so that's where right and so that's why we what we would do is rather than having one person we would have multiple people because okay. yeah at a certain point you know I'm going to get frustrated you're going to get frustrated you know what I'm saying but when there's three of us or four of us together okay that reduces the amount of frustration each one of us have, okay, and the reduces the impact this person is going to have because, more importantly, we have made a commitment that we're going to be consistent on an everyday basis in care-fronting this person to get to the bottom of why they're being the way they are, why are they acting the way they are, why are they treat, trying to treat us the way they are every single day. Good advice. It requires Good a commitment. Advice. Very good. I'm I'm going to try that. See if we get anywhere. I'll call you next week and I'll let you and know. Yeah, let us know. Let us know. Will do. Thank All right, you so sir. much. I appreciate it. You're, uh -huh. very, you're very welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, you can't allow... Uh, it's no different than you know <laughs> the real world. And you can't allow someone in the family environment, the community environment, to have this type of impact and it not go unchecked. And so more often than not, one person is not going to uncheck it, so to speak. But a group of us coming together as a unit consistently and showing that we are not going away until we get answers and behavioral change that we see Otherwise, we're going to be every day discussing this with you. And that's the way, what is that called? What is, what's the name of that? Peer pressure. 
probably the, the most effective pressure known to man, peer pressure. But it has to be consistent. That, and so it requires a commitment from me. I have to commit that I'm going to, it's, it, it's important enough to me that I'm going to every day address this until there is some change. And then that person will see. I See, I have to get it across to them. I'm not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. So every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we're going to be sitting with you for all three meals having this discussion as a family, as family members. Something is going to change. And so we've committed as a group. We're not going to give up. So who's going to win that little battle? Usually the group wins through pressure, positive peer pressure. That's what it's all about. Just how negative peer pressure influences people, positive peer pressure does the same exact thing, but of course for positive reasons. All right, let's go back to the phones. Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name, please, and your hometown? My name is Renee, and I'm from Modesto, California. Hi, Renee. Welcome. Hi. So my question is, I'm getting ready to leave a treatment uh, facility. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, at one time I, I did ha- acquire 10 years clean. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was uh, I heard before, you know, that, well, I was a real... I did a lot of relapses before I got that. And I heard one time said that I'd rather be a retread than a blowout. <laughs> but I was mm-hmm. definitely a retread. And um, I just, I don't have that fire I always had before. And that scares me, you know. Uh, the last relapse, it was probably uh, what was due to pain. Um, I lost uh, my significant other. He, uh, he took his life. And so I walked through that pretty much, and I've gotten through the guilt of that. And now it's like I'm getting ready to go out there and do this recovery thing again. But I just, I just don't have the fire. And you know, I, I've been praying to my higher power, and I'm just, I don't know. You know, there's a part of me that's really scared because I don't have that this time, you know, as I had before. When you say f- the fire, are you talking about like the? Are you talking about desire? Are you talking about commitment? What are you talking about specifically when well, you use the word fire? I'm like, I would be so excited about because uh, I always get plugged in in twelve step uh, groups and NA and and giving uh, you know helping others and and sponsoring and and doing the you know twelve step uh, meetings. And I always felt really good doing that and giving back. And it's just like, I don't know. I just, it's just like nothing is, I don't know. I'm just like a, I'm not really excited, you know? Well, I don't know what to make of that specifically um, because if in the past, because you again, you didn't say that it was a lack of yeah. desire or lack of commitment. 
It's just well, that I would you don't be have like to. full of energy and like highly motivated and to go out there and I had uh, lots of confidence and and I'm lacking all that this time. Okay. So you say you're lacking all of that this time. Yeah, it's just okay. I I don't have I don't know. I guess uh, you know okay. I am a lot Let older. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask okay. you a question. Okay. But in previous times you had that, and at some point, for whatever reasons, valid or not, you'd still experienced a relapse. Yes. Okay. So I think it's safe to say we can't look at right now, with you specifically, these little things to to try and measure them to see whether or not these are going to be the governing factors of whether or not I'm going to succeed or not. Okay. Okay. You have yeah. to decide, you have to determine within, am I committed to my recovery? I I'm committed. I haven't I haven't felt like using, you know. Okay, so I if thank you're committed, God for that. Okay. Okay. So if you're committed to your recovery, okay, then it doesn't have to be you know exciting with fireworks going off and so on and so forth okay you know why for you specifically why because you you've been there done that yeah yeah i have you know what i'm saying you know and also too when i i have done that and it's always been like that and i was around you know um i don't know i was i had a partner too and this time i'm alone uh, but not always. I didn't always have a partner. And I was just sitting there, I was just thinking about that. Because, see, when my significant other died, it's like a part of me died, too. And I didn't even go on my Internet anymore. I, ha- well, I me, didn't. I just, let me interrupt every, you for a second. Let me okay. interrupt you for a second. This is important. And in the interest of time, I have to ask you this question. Okay. Are you Are you talking about this? Yeah, I I am probably not as much as I should. I it doesn't sound like as much as you should because even when you said yes, you didn't say yes with gusto. <laughs> you need you I need to be. I guess it's still really painful. But then that that's why you need to be talking about this. Okay. You need to be talking about this. Not not only while you're still in your treatment environment, but at, when you leave your treatment environment, because it's such a significant event in your life, okay, and what what happened after that. So it's very important that you share about it, talk about it, so that it does not overwhelm you to the point where you find yourself back in the same situation. Correct. No, I don't want to find myself back in that situation. <laughs> and no one wants to see anyone back in that same situation But we need to be talking about the loneliness We need to be talking about the loss, the grief We need to be talking about all of those things Especially I, when I think I when, feel like, you know, I should be through this No, but. there's no time frame There's no time frame on the, written on the wall there's no time Some days for I think that, you know, okay, I need to get on with it, you know. And then when uh, 
I don't know. Well, you it's, you, you it's, are going to be getting you, you are going to be getting on with it, Renee. But the thing, yeah. But the, but it, it doesn't mean that the feelings aren't going to come and go. This thing is not going to. This is this is an event that you experienced in your life. Okay. So yeah. the memory of it is always going to be there. Is it going to feel the same way today, ten years from now? No. Not if Renee does what she's supposed to do. But it doesn't mean that 10 years from now she's not going to think about it and she's not going to have feelings behind it. Right. And 10 years from now, when those feelings resurface, she must talk about it. Okay. I just feel like I I don't want to be like a broken record, but it doesn't matter, huh? I need to keep doing it it until I... Okay. Does not matter. Okay? Okay. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. All right. I'll start talking about it. Bye-bye. More. <laughs> All you. right. Bye. Please do that. Bye-bye. I will. Bye. All right. We have a few a couple of minutes. It's very important that we get across to people that yeah, it's so simple. There's a saying, it's so simple, it's hard. We say talk about it. Sometimes talking about it is is hard to do. But we have to get there at some point where we can talk about it. Because otherwise, the not talking about it is going to have drastic consequences. And that's what we're trying to avoid. And so her experience that she described is a, is a perfect example for others to pay attention to that she had this significant life event, this significant traumatic event that she experienced. She talked about, so now, you know, she she had a relapse behind it. She's now in recovery, getting ready to exit out of a treatment environment and, and move into that next phase, that next stage of her recovery. And she she mentioned it a little bit, glossed over, talked about, you know, it's a different experience now and she, you know, she's got the loneliness aspect because this person is not there now. Well, that has to be talked about. We mentioned up in our show topic about loneliness in regards to relationships being a trigger. So it's very important that we get that message across and get that message out there. And it doesn't make a difference if it's 10 years from now. You know, when when it hits you, I mean, it hits you, and you you feel what you feel when you feel it, and that's when you talk about it. No one has a crystal ball and can speak in advance about when something is going to rear its head, you know, and what and what may trigger it rearing its head. We don't know. We don't know. But you got to when it when it happens, you have to be aware of what's taking place. Be aware of what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, and be willing to talk about it and share about it within your inner circle. And if there's no inner circle, the outer circle. But we can't keep it all bottled up and inside because there's but, there's but so much we can hold. So until we get to a point where it spills over and then we start making bad decisions. Okay, we are out of time for today.
I want to thank our callers, our listeners. Uh, I want to put a special shout-out to uh, my uh, co-host and his wife, and I hope that they are doing well, and I hope uh, things are going well. And again, they're going to be in our thoughts. We're going to send some positive energy their way. And uh, hopefully he's back with us uh, next week. And maybe he might get a, a, a special gift today and the Warriors uh, win the uh, NBA Finals and uh, that will put a smile on his face. I have no skin in the game, so it's okay by me. Although I probably won't be able to tolerate him for a couple of weeks if that does happen. All right, sir. Folks, we'll talk to you next Tuesday live back here on uh, OCG Radio Roach on Recovery. Thank you very much for listening.
our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.